there was no purpose to my photographs excepting mm -hmm. making them. Yeah, and this is this is published in Life later. Some of these that yes. form the nucleus. Yes. And somehow you get out to Phoenix, Arizona before that issue appears too, because all those reflections are done. Oh, right. Let's clear up the Laredo Taft. What year do you have? There? I don't. I just have a, a I reference. think that was a little bit later. But the Laredo Taft lecture is a very, very much of an honor. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a lecture in honor of Laredo Taft, the sculptor. And Alan Teller, Weller, Weller, uh, who was then head of the whole art thing at Urbana, asked me if I would give the lecture in honor of Loretta Taft that year because the College Art Association was having a meeting there and he thought it would be exciting if some aspect of photography was the subject of the Loretta Taft lecture. Do you recall what year that was then? That must have been a little later, I think. Like 54? Four, maybe somewhere. Well, you went, was it before or after you went to Europe? You go to Europe somewhere in there. Before. Yeah, and I went, I think it was before. I go to Europe. You went in 53, 54, somewhere? 54. Uh, okay, well, that's, if it was a college... Whatever, whatever the year that I had my first show, the Pollock thing, whatever she has down there, that is the year that I went to Europe. The reason I know that is because I left. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I had a With a lot of things. Did you take it? I don't think you did. Yours is on the bed. Well, anyway, yeah. All right, let's not get goofed up because I, this is all, you know, has a heavy emotional uh, content for me. These were, you know, this was a period of great emotional uh, trying to find, <coughs> trying to, you know, pull myself out. I was greatly in debt, uh, very uh, uh, much uh, you know, upset by my personal life, and uh, yet working very hard. Uh, began to gradually begin to get some lifetime life jobs. Mm -hmm. And you know some other things. Right. <clears throat> um, to clarify that, that is 1954. 54. 54. Yeah, I think that's correct. Correct. And the reason I went, well, by that time, see, I'd been divorced, and uh, when I you went to Europe. Well, I'd been living with a uh, a uh, 53, 52. I'd been living with a Danish girl who was living in the house with me, who was very beautiful and I liked very much. And uh, then in the interim, she went back to Denmark and uh, I'd met Irene and we fell in love. Well, I was rather torn between these two and I wanted to get married. And uh, so I... Well, went to Europe and we picked up Elsa and with some friends. We were uh, um, Charles Forberg and his wife, Audie, and Bob Ward, an architect here, architect engineer, and a uh, gal who later married a uh, architect in the East, 
and we bought a Volkswagen bus. And so I flew to uh, Amsterdam, Ilsa picked me up. I left Irene in my house, a Mohawk, with June Leaf, who, you know, was Robert Frank's mm -hmm. friend. And, uh, well, had this marvelous time in Europe, and I wanted to make up my mind about who straighten it out. Mm -hmm. And I, I left Elsa and came back to marry Irene, and we did. Yeah, because the way you said you wanted to get married, it's almost like the, you were ready for the concept again, in a sense, and the question of who was not yet decided. That's right. That's exactly right. They're both marvelous. And my daughter went and visited Elsa and stayed with her just a year ago. So it's not considering that I've never written her a letter, and she keeps writing me, and had been through three marriages by now, I guess. Uh, and she was a photography student. And uh, I don't know, I've had very good relations with my women, I think. I've never exploited them particularly. I've always given as much as I've gotten, I'd say. And you've never had, from the sound of it, a bitter knockdown, drag out, breakdown of a relationship, uh, or major one anyway? I don't think so. I mean, you can check, you know, talk to Barbara, she may have a different story. I don't think so. I mean, that I was inadequate at that period, I think I was. I, you know, had a nervous breakdown, as it were. In around? Or a breakdown in confidence, in ego. And that was the period, you see, that I went in an analysis, a classic Freudian analysis, four times a week. And that's where the In Search of Myself title comes from, because... Right, now is this, this is like 50, 51? Mm -hmm. 52. Because mm -hmm. every time I would go downtown, I would photograph, and I'd talk to myself about it, what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. I was going to photograph very intensively, and. It, uh, in you know a few blocks and accept the limitations of film for instance I never used a tripod I said I wouldn't use a tripod if it looked blurred that was okay with me or if you know the color was all cockeyed by Eastman standards it was beautiful by me seven o'clock this is all 35 millimeter all 35 millimeter yeah I at the same time, I was doing some other things, you know, with 4x5 film, mm -hmm. and much earlier. Yeah, when Barbara and I went out west, I shot a, quite a number of landscapes in color. Mm -hmm. Pretty damn dull. Mm. So around about 53, you do start to work more for Time Life. You begin to... to All kinds of things begin to, begin, begin to come up. And is, is this a result of uh, partly persistence in terms of developing contacts and art directors and that kind of thing? Yeah, and also showing pictures that are exciting. I have a question uh, in reference to your leaving the ID. Uh, had you given any consideration to returning to Detroit at that time? No. No, my life was here, I had a house, and uh, there was no point in going back to Detroit. Although it would have been much easier if I'd gone back to Detroit, but I mean, I'd had Detroit as it were. Detroit didn't have any stimulation for me. Chicago did, and uh, 
Oh, Chicago was my home, and there was no plan. I mean, why would I go back to Detroit? I, I just was curious, you know, uh, if you had ever given any thought to that. I mean, now that you were ending one thing, and sometimes people do reconsider uh, at that point. But not if they're from Detroit. <laughs> you can't go home again. Yeah. Hey, which incidentally, I went and visited the boarding house of, you know, you can't go home again, look homeward angel. Wolf, Tom Wolf. I went and visited his house. I don't think Harry, you see, who was there, mm -hmm. photographed on the streets, you know, made a number of his pictures. Well, I was very interested in Tom Wolf's, where he lived. When you were at Black Mountain? Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to tell you, again, little aspects of differences, that's all. Mm -hmm. I actually went in and visited his house. Yeah, that's a good little characterization. Okay, well, the we we come to a point here where you're sort of getting your act back together pretty well. You're starting to do. It was very slow. Like I mean, you, I just you know was in debt up to my ears and didn't have what was then modern equipment. I started to buy, uh, you know, Leicas and. Uh, I was still using the bathroom, as I told you, I never had a dark room until I got here. Uh, it was very rough. So you I had no support from anybody. Now, when I was living with Elsa, you know, she thought I was wonderful, I was much older than she was. Uh, she was going to ID, that's where I met her. Uh, I.D.'s been very good in furnishing <laughs> wives and girlfriends. <laughs> I guess it's one of the advantages of teaching in a good place. Did you mean <laughs> one of the side benefits. At the I.D. also? Yeah, sure. Irene got her master's at the Institute of Design, graduated Northwestern. <clears throat> and she used to sneak into my movie classes. And we finally... I, Met and you know she got in legally. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> Irene and June both got their masters from the Institute of Design, and were you know students <clears throat> worked with Peter Sell, so they really took apart. They were too much for him. <laughs> okay, but but sometime when you actually when you actually marry Irene. Is it 54 when you come you back? You know, I don't know the birthdays of anybody. I don't know any of these family dates. Don't know when the children were born. Don't have the... Irene has to remind me all the time of the children. Those things have no meaning to me. Mm. Like they seem to have tremendous importance to other people. Mm -hmm. But it was sometime after you came back from Europe, like 54 Yes, probably. it was, uh, I think, February, January or February of... Uh, Fifty-five. Okay, you've I I showed you this uh, this um, big list of all the the stuff for fortune and the stuff for time, and I'm just wondering, are there any things on this list that are worth any jobs that are worth commenting on specifically? Um, there's a lot well, of. Well, this starts to see around fifty-three. I begin to do jobs. Yeah, fifty-three is when it starts to become numerous, yeah. and that's the same with time. There were earlier things. I know, but uh, 
you see by uh, whatever this year is, 57. You see, I'm, I'm doing a hell of a lot of work. I'm a regular doing most of the work, as a matter of fact. Yeah, there's, there's hardly a month that you don't have something in. Oh, and a week, most, hardly most a issues. week. My friends kept track of me, say, in 56. Seeing where uh, you were? Yeah. By re there, there wasn't a week that I didn't have something in either time, life, or usually time. Were you like a under-contract freelance type no, of thing? Well, no, no, but I certainly, I was good friends and uh, because of my previous news experience, which then came up as uh -huh. um, useful, uh, I made many suggestions and was able to help the girl because I, by that time, began to know something about Chicago. And I had good contacts. Again, I, st I had friends, not photographer mm -hmm. friends. Tell me Aaron and I were friends very much, you know, when he first came here. Mm -hmm. And I continued to see Harry. Yeah, there's a, there's a photograph in here somewhere. Of, there's a new uh, bureau chief that came in. This is 55, and you photographed with him, and did stuff with him. And that sort of testifies to your... Um, getting, you know, being well known to the people who were uh, who were running the thing here. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, Murray Gard is one of the managing editors, I guess, of Time today. I was very useful to him as well, as I was to George Harris. George there. Harris is the picture here. Is it in '55? Picture of him and a farmer, and a note that he was going to be heading the Chicago Bureau. Harris, mm -hmm. I guess. Oh. Future farmer of America? Might have been. I, I don't have. Well, that has a funny story to it. That's some pictures. I did a lot of cover stories for time. I don't know what year that was. 55. October 55. Were you doing at all any lecturing or any kind of guest appearances during this time or totally removed from that? What do you mean, guest appearances? Well, any kind of, you know, before you had gone around and, and given some talks at these different schools. Were you ever called back after that? Oh, I kept getting calls, but I then started to charge. I mean, before they were free. I mean, it was publicity for the Institute of Design. I would go talk anywhere. But now I wanted some money, like 50 bucks or something. But I spoke at the Dearborn Camera Club, I think at least three times. I spoke to professional groups. Uh, and you went to the University of Missouri thing. Now, was that in the 50s? Oh, that was very important, yeah. That was a real tip-top thing. You see, the people that came there and were on the staff were people like Stryker, Gene Lee, Russell Lee, John Morris. Was that like a, a late summer, early that spring workshop? That was a 10-day spring workshop, late or maybe the end of the semester, I can't remember. Uh, tough, high-class uh, thing, where each each year was held at a different place and was in a small town in Missouri. As I told you, the idea was to document the small towns over a period of long period, you know, maybe 10, 15 years, and then publish a book. And the guy that was running it, it was his, his brilliant idea, was a very nice professor, Cliff Edom. Who E D O M? Who taught photography? Well, Cliff didn't know much about photography, journalism, even though he taught it and wrote a book about it later. Yeah, I've seen his name. But uh, he was a good organizer and you know got support for this thing. And 
he had enough sense to go to people like Gene Lee, and they took it over, you know, the actual um, who came, whereas Cliff handled all the administrative details. And the way it worked was you'd come there, and it was so organized that he would have a staff set up. And people would shoot during the day, and overnight the staff would develop the thing so everybody could look at the pictures the next morning. So you got Just like a professional feedback. lab. Yes, and that was terrific. Well, it attracted a great number of professional photographers and, and journalism students. And it was a limited thing. I can't remember what the number was. It's like 30 or 100? Or yeah, somewhere like 30 or, well, maybe... 30 to 40 somewhere around, I can't remember. And uh, the staff was paid, and uh, it was a great honor, and it was tough. I mean, he worked all day long and all night long, nobody, you know, the students kept gnawing on you, you couldn't get away from them, excepting when they were out shooting, so you made sure they were out shooting. but. You, you gave assignments very much like, uh, you know, city desk, but more general. And then the pictures were criticized in the evening or in the morning sometime. And there was very ruthless and very important. And I gave, each year I gave a lecture on color photography as a news thing, which was practically unheard of then. And a lot of people came, like from Minneapolis and the Mm -hmm. uh, Milwaukee, Milwaukee. Um, uh, Journal, and uh, they thought, you know, they were the crack or jack photographers of the world. Mm -hmm. Well, they learned a hell of a lot. It was, gave me great pleasure to, you know, teach those guys that they really, there were a lot of things they didn't know. Because they didn't have the breadth of background for one. That's right. They didn't have my kind of breadth. Do you know when this or was? Or John Morris, for that matter. Do you know when you went there? After your... Maybe 52, 50. I went there three years. I mean, I kept getting invited back and could have gone back more, but it got to be kind of a chore. Would it have been after you came back from Europe, more really... No, no, before, before, I think, yeah. All three years were probably the years before then. Yeah, somewhere there. Okay, well, they must, they must have records. Yeah. You'd think so. Hopefully. Uh, Gene and Russell were very important to me. They liked my teaching. They had already you know, known me from Washington. And they, they liked, even though I was kind of weak physically, which I've always, you know, been... When I got out of the Air Corps, I was in just marvelous shape. But, uh, you know, and I've always been a high-energy guy, but I am not... <laughs> most of my life, I think I weighed around 122 pounds. It was only in the last... 10 years I've gained 10 pounds, uh, it makes a difference in that high, uh, when you're carrying bags as I did, I, I, my shoulders, uh, every photojournalist is cockeyed, his back is cockeyed. From, I would be carrying 535, five other lenses, strobe equipment, extra film, a tripod, and traipsing all, you know, running in a parade. When Eisenhower was here, you know, I maybe ran two miles. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a bunch of crap. Well, you were Incidentally, before I, the, this is all out of order, but Wallace Kirkman, who was one of the 
you know, life staff photographers waited for years mm -hmm. to photograph Eisenhower, not Eisenhower, sorry, MacArthur. Mm -hmm. There was a parade here in Chicago, and uh, Wallace, who had been with Jane Adams at the Hull House and uh, in the Pacific then, where he clashed with uh, MacArthur and thought he was a powder pigeon, he got up on a pole and waited this whole parade just so he could photograph the bald spot on MacArthur. Photographers are funny people to deal with. I mean, you know, not the art photographers, I don't think, but photojournalists, you know, they have long memories and they don't, they think they're uh, important and if you cross them, they try to get revenge. Yeah, and of course the importance of the media today is a big issue and then it was, it just wasn't as consciously raised, it was the same thing though. That's right, well, the question was people didn't think the media was distorting the way they do today. That's the issue today, is what you read or see on television, is the, what relation does it bear toward reality? Do you think that the relation has always been pretty much the same in the sense that there's always sure. some distortion and there's always... Of course, there's a new book published, I don't know the name or who did it, on the, all the reporters that have covered all the wars and photographers, just recently out within the year. That they all were propagandists. Every goddamn one of them. They totally distorted something. At and, some point. I mean, yeah, well, we know that. I mean, the uh, information was withheld all, all along. I, I had a question in terms of color and news. Because obviously, the main drawback was the cost of reproducing it in a magazine like Time. It wasn't the cost, you see. Uh, although that was a consideration. And that's where I paid, played a pioneering role again in photojournalism 35. Life was one of the last to adopt. Instead of pioneering, they were the last, really. They insisted almost, you know, after all the other magazines, that you couldn't use 35. It was mainly in the handling. The engravers objected to handling this little thing. But once they began to make scanners, you know, electronic type scanners, then it became all right, as it were. So or they developed methods of scanning these little things. So it was really just the resistance on the part of the technical staff. A great deal of it was to, to handling the damn things. And they were so many pictures could be made. And if you're a life photographer, I'm telling you, film was no never entered anybody's mind the cost of film. Did they? Did they? Or for example, in like this stuff that you did for time, did did you shoot? things in color that were printed in black and white? Or did they insist Never. that it be black and white? Black and white. I don't remember any picture that was taken in color and uh, printed in black and white. I, even with, with uh, time and much later, I kept shooting four by five. I mean, right to the end, if you wanted to do a reproduction of... Uh, to the end being what, 64, 65, I mean like that later? Oh, later than that. Even after you started teaching again? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I continued on uh, after I went back the second time. In fact, well, when we get into it, my salary was $9,000, which was hardly enough to keep uh, three kids going. Uh, but I just got sucked into a full-time job there by Aaron. And, I mean, gradually took over. I was only supposed to teach a day or something like that. 
Yeah, but I kept getting more interested in till. But even from right from the word go there, <coughs> I said if there's any to myself again, if there's any conflict between a job and the education, when I'm supposed to meet my class, I'm going to meet it. So I settled that problem, mm -hmm. which was a constant problem with a lot of people. I mean, because I could go out and make three, four hundred bucks in two hours. Mm. You know, or yeah, I was, thousands sometimes. Well, I'm pursuing this issue of color yeah. a little bit. I'm yeah. just wondering, um, you know, because I... I, I did I, work for the setting uh, for uh, Coggers, a lot of color work, number of stories. Uh, in the nature of a feature type of a Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did the first color cover on the Ladies Home Journal, John Morris, you know, who was the editor. First one from the 35. Yeah, first one from the 35. And I had known John from earlier. You know, he was the editor who did that wonderful series called How America Lives. And was, or maybe still is, the New York Times photo editor. I think he's no, not anymore. been relieved. He yeah. spoke at the publishing conference at Eastman House last spring. Did they replace him? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's writing a book. Probably more or less retired. Yeah, well, he retired and he's working on some kind of book. Well, and he's writing, and I notice he's, he's a contributing editor to popular photography. Right. The, well, John and I used to be very good friends. I used to go to his house, and you know, uh -huh. his first wife, who later died. Uh, we liked each other. So, uh, yeah, on that job, I just looked through a, you know, a model book, picked a model, took her out to uh, Sutton Place, borrowed a hose, and I'd been staying at uh, Hans Knoll's apartment on the East River. He had two apartments, one for Knoll's. No, no old furniture, the international thing, which became a great success. And Hans was a very good friend of mine, and Florence Knowles, his wife, who I knew from Michigan and Cranbrook, for your information. Uh, she's married to a banker in Miami now. Shu <laughs> went to uh, study with Mies van der Rohe, and uh, then when they made this big success, I used to go and stay in this apartment whenever I wanted to. We were friends, and I did a lot of work, for instance, in this period, for Knoll International. Mm. Uh, Dallas sense. Pictures, their showroom, I went down there, helped set it up. Mm. And uh, uh, Niedringhaus, my friend that I mentioned, you know, was at the new bar house and then taught there. Niedringhaus began to work for Noel, and ultimately, after Hans died, became the head of it. Um, complicated story. So you had this hose. So yeah, I had this hose, and, and I took this girl who, when she arrived, had a limp. She had, had polio. But I liked her face. I mean, that's all I picked her from. So I shot for maybe an hour and a half, and I had gotten some umbrellas that were colorful, and, and arranged it so that there was a rainbow around her, you know, by just the mist of the hose. And shot, I don't know, five rolls or something like that.
Here's the here, here's the question I've been working up to asking him. Yeah. Because we were talking about color in news photography. Yeah. In news magazine photography. Right. And um, the thing I'm interested in, first of all, is do you today, you know, or recently follow like Time Magazine or Newsweek? Do you do you ever look at them particularly? It was funny, for I don't know how many years of my life, I read every issue of Time Magazine from cover to cover. When you worked for him? Yeah. And uh, after I left, uh, in the last couple of years, I don't even look at Time Magazine. Or Newsweek, or...? Uh, the only time I ever look at Newsweek, really, and I find it kind of interesting, um, is doctor's office, dentist's office. I've only purchased, I think, about three issues of either Time or Newsweek in the past five years. The reason I ask that is because, um, not to, because I was wondering if you're aware that now they're they're very much pushing color in the in the standard coverage. Oh, I know that. And that they've yeah, I look through on newsstands. That they've gone. But I haven't purchased to one. a lot more what they just call run of press color, yeah. you know, standard. Right. Color. You see, once you get into color. You can print the whole magazine in color because, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to make the plates. And it is more expensive. There's no question about it. Well, but they're in competition with color television, you see. And so uh, it's very important that color is part of our total environment today, I think, of images. And that's the great shift. Well, see, very frequently it was argued earlier that color was artificial when I was doing color, artificial news. That, you know, how could you photograph somebody who was murdered in color? It, you know, might look good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course it happened in color. That's right, but yeah, you see there is a lot of confusion. And to this day, you read photographers who talk about the more powerful, uh, and I agree with this, black and white is much more abstract than color. And because of the conventions, I think, it has a documentary flavor. Just because of tradition at this point. Well, not necessarily. Uh, that's all in people's heads. See, now one oh, of my contributions was convincing Roy Stryker that you could do documentary pictures in color. That's why he hired me. I'd been trying to educate Roy art-wise from, you know, when earlier in Washington used to try and show him pictures. But there's only a fraction of any of that work that's actually in color, though. That's quite true, but I convinced Roy that there was a place, see, like in the Jones Laughlin series, or better yet, the only picture that was ever published of all of the Standard Oil files that ever appeared in Vogue was a little photograph by Arthur Siegel in color. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was that assignment, or what was the picture, do you recall? Well, I think it came out of an assignment I did for, uh, Roy asked me, we talked, and I used to see Roy even when I wasn't working for him. I liked Roy. Uh, he said he gave me an assignment to photograph a uh, a um, some uh, refining equipment or yard, whatever they call it. A refinery. Yeah, yeah a refinery, and also a a uh, ship that carried oil. And I went on the ship, I can't remember the order of you, whether I went to the refinery or uh, 
the ship. But I went on the ship and I spent the whole day on it and the person that took me around was the captain of the ship. And uh, I photographed and it was right up my alley. I mean, it was exactly what I was doing for myself. That's exactly, if nobody else had, if it wasn't the assignment, I would have done exactly what I did in the refinery too. Uh, and at the end of the day, after a nice lunch and worked very hard, I was very excited about this opportunity. Uh, I was getting off and I thanked the captain for taking me around. He said, I have to thank you. And I said, what for? He says, well, I've been on the ship, I don't know how many years, now 15 years. He says, and today's the first time I've ever seen it. Well, that was one part of the assignment. The other was, in the uh, refinery, I photographed everything as I wanted to. A lot of them, Stryker pulled out, or somebody did, and uh, I think sent them back to me because they were defects in the system, namely drips. I love the drips. And I, there's one, actually, a refraction pattern of the oil on water in a pool of water there. Well, that's bad housekeeping, you see. And that's what those guys are most concerned with, safety. And they don't want to, you know, if you photograph in mines or factories, the thing they're most concerned with is to make the situation look, you know, healthy in terms of human qualities. And anything that is potentially dangerous or anything, if they can suppress it, they'll suppress it. So I'd made a lot of pictures of stagmalites and stalactolites of of things that had dripped down wax-like petroleum products. <laughs> Those were all killed. <laughs> they were removed from the file and returned yeah. to you. Uh, the, uh, but one of those pictures appeared in, as a small picture in Vogue. <laughs> of course, yeah, another reason behind the printing more color today is is also they can print more ad pages of color. Because right. the way the thing is put because together. the color, as I say, you're talking. The thing that sets the visual environment of today, whether like it or not, is television. And that's in color. Mm -hmm. I mean, the poorest people have color television. When I read, you know, surveys and so on about what happens, one of the somebody just did a study of took forty families or so and paid them. Right. That they were going to give them $500, 500 to stop watching TV for, for a 30 month. days, yeah. And what happened, you see, they developed psychological problems of withdrawal, you know, addiction. And, uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that study. Yeah. I should so, find so, families got divorced. Yeah. Produced tension. So, that's a factor. Then the other thing, of course, is that it's a hell of a lot easier to shoot today in color than it was then. I mean, when I was shooting, it was 10 ASA still. And I mean, what was it finally got up to 25 or something. And what was the black and white, about 200? 100 well, 160, I think it was. Something. So there's actually color film today that's faster than the black and white you were shooting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And today, you see, with this suddenly with this new 400 ASA color film, it's now for a photographer like myself. There isn't anything I couldn't photograph if I were, you know, in good shape without any supplementary light. There, 95 percent of all situations that are photographed in magazines or industry, I could today photograph by natural available light in color. In color.
Whereas one of the things that I was selling then, see, and doing ads for, was that there wasn't anything I couldn't photograph in black and white in a natural light. I mean, I went down to Florida and did a series of, I don't know, six, eight, maybe six ads for Hertz truck with 35 and, and 120 film, which were used in national magazines. They were all natural light, even though they were at night. You see a trucker calling up from an outdoor telephone thing in a small black village or something with mud streets, uh, simply so it was one second exposure. So what? I mean, today I could shoot that in color. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that that is interesting and a, and a kind of a problem maybe eventually is that now with like I have a friend who is in the Washington Bureau of Newsweek, mm -hmm. which is the only reason I read Newsweek mm -hmm. at this point. And John Grimes has a friend that's one of the editors. This is a, a guy named Fuller. This is a woman named Susan McElhenney, and who's the second full-time photographer in the Washington Bureau. And uh -huh. She's now, and both of the photographers, she and uh, Wally McNamee, who's the main photographer, they're both right. shooting, everything is high-speed extrachrome, or transparency, I think it's high-speed yeah. extrachrome. Yeah. Which has recently been improved. Before you couldn't use it because it was so weak. As, where are you, could go. The, the, the point I was uh, getting to was simply that the stuff for file purposes, is all going to be no good in some relatively short period of time. It's going to disintegrate in a short time. See, Vogue and Life already encountered that problem by the early 50s. And maybe the, and the thing I talked about, you know, in connection with the prints, and I showed you the faded color prints. The faded type Cs. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you see, I think there's, um, well, Vogue discovered that the color things had all turned blue. Life had that experience. That's why, you know, I want to write an article called Mirror with a Faulty Memory. Because whereas before the assumption was that it was permanent, now the assumption has to be that it's impermanent. It's going to disappear. Yeah. And that's a different concept of photography. Well, and the question, too, that theoretically, I mean, to me, it seems that one of the good things about news photography even though it's done under all kinds of different conditions which don't lead to necessarily the ultimate documentary type of image, nonetheless, that the pictures are going to be there and that they do represent a kind of historical resource. And with the, with the all-color you know, camera work being done, uh, even a lot of them are printed black and white, that, 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 well, that's yeah. going to go by the boards. That right. Way. The ideal process always has been to see something that you could print either black and white or color something like a varicolor process, a high-speed thing that could be printed either black and white or color. That's ideal. Because I, you know, I used to go out on assignments all the time with five cameras, a couple of them black and white, and a couple of them color, with the same focal length lens. That's why I had so many cameras, for one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. Aside from the fact that, uh, you know, you wanted the different focal lengths, but I frequently had to shoot both black and white and color on the job. Mm -hmm. um, it's a terrible problem. I just noticed, I got today, I don't know if you did, a letter from the Metropolitan Ad, which offers 
12 photographs by Stephen Shorts in the kitchen I meant to show you. A portfolio that Henry Geldzeller and I don't know who else have picked out for $1,250 now and $1,500 you know, later. 50 portfolios. And it's printed on RC paper. Ectocolor RC. That stuff is very delicate. It's going to fade. I think it's outrageous. It may even just separate right off the mountain. That's right. right. I was going to say the separation. But the way it sounds, you see, they're using all all the bullshit about you know this box that gives the name of the guy who made the box and the type who did the typography. All of that is crap when compared to you know looking at a Nadar picture. I mean, who cares if the typography? I mean, that's all said. It's what you know used to be known as sell the sizzle of the steak. Sell the sizzle. Yeah. Who's that? Elmer Wheeler or somebody? I forgot. Some advertising guy. And their whole chains, Toffinetti. You never got potatoes. You got sweet smelling, smiling tomatoes or potatoes or, you know, uh, lovingly picked apples. You know, there was always some descriptive adjective or adverb before the important thing, namely whether it was an egg or an apple. Mm. Well, that's what's going on in photography. They're taking and packaging every goddamn thing. And you can sell every goddamn thing because nobody, you know, photography is not really, is constantly in a period of redefinition. Today everything is being re-resurrected or... It's either been resurrected, you know, or they're meeting, pushing new people. Well, the packaging is the competition of, uh, you know, the commodity. It's trying to sell to the commodity because there's a market out there to, to purchase it, whereas before there wasn't. There wasn't that interest. Well, I know, but they make that interest by thinking you're a slob, just as if you didn't buy a cowl sweater this fall and you weren't fashionable. So if you don't have a Stephen Chart portfolio and you're in academia, then you don't know what's going on. But everybody's going to get clipped. It's like everyone's running around with their boots this fall. When the winter comes, they're going to be freezing to death. Well, the custom, the costume for this year, of course, was the cowl sweater, the high boots. And the peasant look. No, no, that's last year. No, there's still pushing. You're me. way behind. <laughs> You're much better in front layered, than I am about layered layered I'm a classicist dresser, as you know. Yeah, but that doesn't have to do with uh, <laughs> fashion. I'm talking about fashion. No, my style's never changed, but they're all very classic. Well, um, here's one more thing we might talk about, and then call it a day here, just for the heck of it. This'll, this'll, you'll love this. <laughs> this is uh, very simply. 75 pictures you made for Oscar Mayer. <laughs> Xeroxes of them, I should say. Yeah. These were my prints, or did they make the prints? I don't know. I prided myself on making the prints, and I printed everything yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, well, these were all 35, and this was the best documentation of the meat industry that was ever made, probably. Mm -hmm. Now, this was done in 70, or in uh, 58. 
for their 75th anniversary. anniversary right. And this is, I've just got a group kind of pretty arbitrarily. Yeah, well, these are terrible reproductions of some very straight, you know, classic prints done in 35, mm -hmm. done very rapidly, uh, covering everything of, this was out on a farm where they raised. Yeah, they're all captioned uh, on the back. Oh, really? If they had a caption that was uh, with them. They, yeah. Well, this deals with the administration and the sales and the uh, selling, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, see, if I were a normal guy, I'd have kept these negatives and done a book on the meatpacking industry. Mm -hmm. there, there, there's enough for two books. And somebody should do it. Does that say why negatives? No, the Wisconsin Historical now has them. But I mean, did they, they did have, yeah. Oscar Mayer donated them to That's them. right. I, I mean, the people I dealt with, Ronald Goodman, uh, they wanted to keep these things with Oscar Mayer, and I guess I can't remember whether Oscar Mayer wanted to want them. This is a machine shop for making the machinery that processes meat. Um, they, uh, see, I did a number. I, uh, Betsy Plank, who worked for Ronald Goodman, and I formed a very good team. Ronald Gooden was a very big guy, he's now still in business, uh, but moved out to Iowa. And he had earlier done things for Aspen, and uh, he discovered me, and Betsy Plank, who's now Vice President for American AT&T, very much on the basis of several booklets that we did together for American Marietta and other things, the Oscar Mara things, to, which is very nice, and she took care of the writing, and then we both sort of collaborated on the guy who designed it. We always got good designers. And these were just terrific books. This is their testing laboratory. Yeah, I'm buying and selling meat, cattle. Well, that's kind of interesting. This was at a place where the farmers came. This little kid in the snow Yeah. Suit, yeah. And uh, I guess they bought cattle or something. Buying station to sell livestock. Yeah, Oscar Meyer would, would buy cattle from these people. Uh, this was part of the lab. And well, the way I worked was very interesting. This is testing. Eating the stuff. Yeah, they cooked and ate. Well, the cleaning. Um, I would, I and the arrangement was that they didn't tell me what to photograph. I just photograph what I want. But by that time, I had a great skill, uh, technically, and a, a, a great facility for um, seeing pictures, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would just cover everything. Well, my the re way I sold it was that. I would not try and make pictures for the booklet. What I would try and do was make a picture file for them that could be used mm -hmm. for other purposes, with the exception of ads. If they used them for ads, they paid me separately, which frequently happened. In fact, I had a big uh, battle with one of the largest ad agencies because they took the work for Oscar Mayer. They took one of my pictures and they bragged about it. And I'd made it long before they even had the account. So I made them pay me, which they actually did. They really, I mean, that was really very unethical. 
but they are unethical. Um, anyway, when I got through, or when I went into a place, I just started working in the morning, would wander around whatever the hell it was, the factory, the farm or something, get a quick look, and then I would go back and I'd start photographing. And I photographed everything that I thought could possibly ever be used as a picture. Was it all in the city of Madison? Pretty much? No, worked in Madison, Chicago, somewhere out on a farm somewhere else, I think Iowa, uh, Chicago streets. Okay, how long did you work on this? A month? Maybe 14 days. Hmm. I mean, my average number of photographs I would have made would be somewhere between six and maybe ten rolls a day, 36 exposure. And then, unlike most everybody, I developed the damn things myself because I always thought Gamma overdeveloped everything, and they still do. And then I made my own prints, and they were beautiful. And for years, I've been able to make prints that you can't tell the difference between four by five or... I mean, you don't bet your life on my pictures of what they were taken. This, and the reason I'm telling you this is because this is a time all the art directors were saying, you can't make a picture we can use unless it's at least a 4 by 5 Cleaning the trucks. Uh, this was in the streets of Chicago, as you can tell by the architecture. Mm -hmm. This is their little wiener-shaped uh, thing with a, a small guy who went around. A little, little Oscar. What yeah, little, little Oscar, yeah. That's part of that story. And here's something that would come out of work on a farm. Testing of some kind, different kind of testing. This is not up in Madison. I think this was up in India and Chicago. Just testing. Mm -hmm. so it had different levels of testing, of delivering the stuff, making sausages. Yeah, that's a great machine. Yeah, the sausage is coming out. Um, you know, all the housekeeping, the mechanical thing is necessary. No, that's a confusing one when in the Xerox. Yeah, it's confusing even. I think. There's a light bulb somewhere. There's light bulbs right here, and I think that that's the top of the picture. The top of the picture? As far as I can figure. Yes, it is. That's the only thing that really is the sure. inclusive clue is the light, the light bulbs. Sure. I think we're both wrong. I think this is the floor. I can't see the And here, 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 well, not. Yeah. Make up your mind. Before I, I tell you you're wrong. <laughs> Arthur's right. Let me look at it. Arthur is right. This is a floor. That's right. And this is a uh, container, a steel barrel. That's oh, right. yeah. That's and, right. And uh, this is a, a uh, conveyor belt, of some, conveyor kind. belt mm -hmm. of some kind. And these lights are hanging down. That's and right. they're That's looking right. at whatever it is that's going on here. That's I right. think what's going on, I think you're looking at a death house. What is this? I think these are probably, I think that's stung cattle. Or it says I'm back. That have already been anesthetized and they're going up or down or something like that. I think that's what that has to do with. It. What does it say? Plant hog, hog immobilize. Hog immobilizes harmless carbon dioxide to put animals to sleep before they're dispatched. What they do is put carbon dioxide in the environment, they pass out, and then they slit their throats and let them bleed. Mm -hmm. I think that's what happens there. Yeah. Huh. A hog immobilizer. <laughs> <laughs> so 
here's one of the Oscar mine. See, another thing I did was push the whole concept of executive portraiture. That it was okay if their ties were askew and so on. It was more important to believe in them than to present this dopey, harsh kind of uh, picture. Mm -hmm. This is one of the Oscar Mayer brothers, I think, did. Cafeterias, printouts from computers, you know, the business is all not all drab, buying stuff, telecommunications systems, um, buyers of one kind or another. Testing buyers. Uh, a lady who just went around testing for hygiene. And, you know, supermarkets. Here are the hogs on the farm. This is all, you know, hog farm. At night, lots of night pictures. You know, this process went on 24 hours a day. Which, you know, I'd already done a story for in color for fortune on Chicago, Chicago Industries at night. Mm -hmm. Well, the idea that it, that was sold, that was my idea, was that there were some modern industries that couldn't function because of the high capital investment unless it went on 24 hours a day, like refineries. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's all about. And they're nice pictures, considering that I probably didn't spend more than one minute on any of them. I mean, in a given day, how much is? 36, let's say 30 pictures times 6. 180, 200 pictures, something like that. 30. 180. 180. Well, say I would take eight rolls, somewhere around 250 pictures, of which I would not shoot more than maybe uh, not many duplicates. Mm -hmm. You know, I might make some variations where I thought. But essentially, I was going on shoots, and I would, you know, stand on tables and. Like it's tasting Yeah. I mean, this is the closest thing to an arranged picture. This is where they're packaging hot dogs, and this one is the inspector. So I'd ask him and her to stand there. Yeah. Just because I wanted to get this and them together. Uh, well, so it went. Here's a farmer's house and a business meeting, you know, maybe a board of directors meeting back at the farm. Now, if there isn't a book in that, see, they did a booklet. Here are some executives out of their office, just thinking, talking. Uh, Oscar Mayer then made this booklet, sent it out. We're off. And uh, just had an enormous number of requests and thank you notes from schools, wherever they were sent. Because hmm. there wasn't anything like it. Business meeting. I mean, it was a tremendous success. They had, I don't know, three stacks of, or four stacks of, of males. This is where they bought cattle. Um, of, you know, thank you notes from all kinds of places. Educational places, high schools, colleges, uh, you know. There's one great picture of it. See, like the night thing. I would always go and make a set of night pictures. I was smart, professional. But now, uh, it was directed toward really discovering what was there in a fresh way. These are not artistic pictures in any way of, this was an ad, became an ad. Mm -hmm. so this is the guy that 
you know, gave a final okay, a tester became an ad. Um, but there's a liveliness about these pictures that did not exist then. Today there are all kinds of pros that have learned these lessons. What is so funny is that young people, you see, this is one of the Oscar Marvel. I could do a professional job in a day, but it would take them two months and it wouldn't be any good. I mean, I knew what I was doing. This one really good one of executive. Uh, I think it's the one after this guy on the telephone. Mm -hmm. Was using a little body oh, yeah. to uh, get his point across. Yeah, well, I was very conscious of gestures and the way coats did not fit and that kind of thing. I mean, the, 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 the deviation from perfection from the archetype is what interested me, actually. <laughs>